if you have a license to prescribe medicine, it is your ethical duty to be able to understand the totality of the research. I'm a reasonable person. And so I ask reasonable questions. If an SSRI, we don't have really strong evidence that it can outperform a placebo. If it's a pregnancy risk category C, if it impacts the developing fetus or is passed through through breast milk, how do you, in a paper, come to the conclusion that the benefits may outweigh the risks? If emotional numbing exists that can create distance and a detachment from the needs of your own baby, how in any way can a scientist say the benefits may outweigh the risk? What are the benefits? My issue with this is, is your issue. They've taken liberty to say things that are not true. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Hi, I'm an honor to be on the program. My name is Dr. Roger McPhillan. I'm a clinical psychologist, board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology, executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and host of the Radically Genuine podcast. So a lot of my, my work clinically is overseeing a large group practice and doing individual work in cognitive and dialectical behavior therapy. I work with parents, adolescents, and adults who are struggling with mood, depression, anxiety, uh, eating disorders, and people who are experiencing multiple problems related to emotion dysregulation, I guess is the best way to say it, who may be chronically suicidal, just struggling in relationships, self-injurious, things of that nature. All right. Well, Roger, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, I heard you on Megan Murphy's podcast a few weeks ago, and I started listening to your podcast, and I just think it's incredibly valuable. So thank you for making the time to come on our show in, in, in short notice. Would you mind starting uh, our discussion by telling everyone what happened with you, the little Joe Rogan detail? <laughs> sure. It's and a fascinating, about, yeah, yeah, fascinating story. I, gotten a lot of attention since this. One of my missions is to just try to promote research in order for people to make informed healthcare decisions, um, especially sensitive to young people. So I've had to resolve the, the conflict that exists between what I see in clinical practice and what I've seen in clinical practice over multiple decades versus what is told to me is safe and effective or frontline interventions. So one of the things that I have done over the past seven years is really thrown myself into the, the research on what they are marketed as antidepressant drugs. I hate to say that word because that word is powerful and it does not represent actually what mechanisms of action are or what the drugs actually do. So SSRIs, commonly known as antidepressants, done a number of, of, of just deep dives into the literature with both adolescents and adults and just consulted with statisticians, researchers, experts around the globe, since there is such a large and growing community of harmed patients. But that information is not available 
really to the American public and in the allopathic medical environment that we're in where drugs are healthcare, they are inappropriately prescribed without informed consent. People are not aware of the risks of these drugs and they, they're passed out like candy, even for young and developing brains. And there's so much risk associated with those drugs. So I started with at my practice, just developing a position statement on antidepressant drugs since they were the most frequently prescribed. And within that research, it really took me so many different avenues into understanding how these drugs come to market and how there's just fraud in the clinical trials and how academics and physicians are placed on the payroll who become really pharmaceutical salespeople disguised as psychiatrists, physicians, clinical psychologists. And part of my mission was to develop the Radically Genuine podcast to be able to communicate this information to the general public. And I just recently started a YouTube channel as part of this. So figured that we have to be able to get into the video aspect of this and create videos that are usually just around six, seven minutes, because that's kind of what the attention span is before you begin to lose people. And to make it research-based and clear so people have the information to challenge their doctors or tra- challenge the prevailing narrative. So it was only a couple weeks ago we launched our YouTube channel with what I thought was my most critical video because it was about information for antidepressants for children, children and adolescents. You know, who does not want to understand what the public published scientific literature is on antidepressants for kids? And many admit we're in a mental health crisis. They a lot of people attribute it to COVID, and certainly that's a factor, but it was it was on the incline way before COVID. And we're just prescribing these drugs more and more and more disproportionately to young girls. And then we see this increasing rate of hospitalization. So in this seven minute or so video, I had the research popping up on the screen with conclusions from the scientists very clear over the past two decades. We have our YouTube channel up for less than 24 hours and they terminate the entire channel. So if you look into YouTube, you understand that they have certain policies around community guidelines and you know they have the ability to flag you or take down a a video if they believe it's concerning they terminated the entire channel before it even started so i have a growing twitter community that follows me and so i posted it the entire video on my twitter account and that's where joe rogan retweeted it and a number of other people in the in large following community like Brett Weinstein or Jordan Peterson. And so it got over a million views. Did you retweet it with the comment that YouTube took it down? Yes. I think that was key. And that's why Joe Rogan said, let me, let me step aside here. Yeah. I really, (laughs) I really posed the question. Why would publishing research for people to be able to make informed decisions? Why would that lead to terminating an entire channel. Why does that violate community guidelines? How is that violating community guidelines? Speaking truth? Well, that's where we're at now, where actual speaking of truth will violate their standards because there is an alignment with the pharmaceutical companies. They're large. The pharmaceutical industry is so powerful that 
they really hold the purse strings for advertising dollars. And you you remove advertising dollars away from the legacy media or some of these technology outlets. I mean, it's it, it's a it's really powerful on their and impactful on their bottom line. So I think what happens is when you start to speak out against the drug model and you begin to bring attention, whether it's in whether it's COVID or whether it's in my field, the psychiatric community, you begin to be identified as as somebody who's a potential threat. And the only way they're going to be able to target you is through ad hominem attacks and trying to in some way discredit you. So that's why it's so important that I stick to what the published science is, because all this information is out there and it's available. But 99% of physicians, they don't have the time. They don't do this work. They are relying on the messaging from the pharmaceutical salespeople or from the published research in select journals. And they assume certain things to be true because there's guidelines that are developed by the major medical organizations. So bottom line is that video went viral and it's provided me even a greater platform to be on your podcast, to be on other podcasts. My podcast has grown significantly. It was in the top 10 of the Apple charts for um, for not just mental health, but I think a number of categories. So it, obviously it brought a lot of attention and and that's my platform. That's my goal right now is just to bring this information to the public. And that's why I'm so appreciative of this opportunity. But it's not just to talk about the drug model. It's also to talk about the conceptualization, the medical model of conditions like depression, or how how many people kind of view their own mental health. Uh, tell everyone what happened when YouTube uh, saw what, <laughs> what attention your yeah. video got on other platforms. Then there was a such a groundswell of support that they reinstated our YouTube channel, kind of like an oops, we're sorry, we made a mistake. No explanation, uh, no identification or any things that we violated, just you're back on. And they can do other things to limit your visibility and to demonetize you. And you know, that that's kind of what happens, right? So even though that video has gone viral, it's very difficult for people to really get to my YouTube channel unless I find different ways to direct them there. But hopefully the more opportunities I have to speak, people are willing to go to Radically Genuine, the YouTube channel, the podcast, and have access to this. I just want to comment on one thing that you said. Um, You said doctors don't have the time to do this research. I would say they don't have the interest. I think they're watching Succession like everyone else. You know, I mean, I think you really know who you are in your field of work when we look at what you're doing in your free time. And you are a doctor, you have a PhD, and you're doing this work in your free time. I know Tricia and I do this work in our free time. And um, I just will not ever say doctors are busier than anyone else. They have a career like everyone else. And if they had the interest to do this research, and frankly, I think if they had the self-respect to do it, and many of them do. Um, they would do it. <laughs> they wouldn't be turning to pharmaceutical reps. Yeah, how, do we, I, how do we look to an how do we look to a quote expert and say where do you get your information from? And they say, oh, I got it from that person. I think yeah. that's that's really what it is. I don't think it's even that much about time. They are they are busy. They probably don't want to spend all their free time doing research. But anyone who really values you know growing, evolving, being progressive will will do that. But it really is that you know medicine 
and especially in maternity and really in all parts, but I know maternity best, it is not based on evidence. It is based on consensus. It is based on what I'll do what you do because you said that and I'll do that and we'll follow that. And we all just follow the same like like lemmers or whatever they are. We call it rhetoric. (laughs) It's just rhetoric. Things take hold. And then it it, it doesn't get questioned until somebody wants to step outside the mold and then they're the bad guy. And then they're at risk of how many people have been fired from practices for not following protocol and guidelines. Their job then becomes at risk because they want to practice differently. They want to take a holistic approach. They want to buck the system. They're few and far between because of that. Yeah. First of all, I totally agree with both of your statements. So uh, let me kind of just um, rephrase what I said. Uh, over 80% of these psychiatric drugs are actually prescribed in primary care centers. And primary care doctors routinely kind of discuss the environment in which they work in, eight to 10 minute appointments at best. And having to follow these guidelines or their job is at risk. So as one doctor told me, pediatrician who was prescribing antidepressant drugs to teenagers, he said, listen, if something happens to this girl or this guy who was reporting depressed mood, suicidal thinking, and I didn't follow the guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics, my license is at risk. And I said, do you know that there is more than a double risk of suicide in a teen taking an antidepressant compared to a placebo? So why would that be a frontline treatment for somebody who is talking about suicide? So think about that. On paper, the... It, on paper, because the doctor prescribed the medication, they're protected from the lawsuit. It's the same thing with the C-section. The risk to the mother and the baby with having a C-section in birth is is much greater. But the doctor who doesn't perform the C-section is the one who's going to get sued. The one who performs the C-section is always going to be protected, even right. though the risk is greater. Yes. Yeah. And that same is the problem. problem. That is the problem with our environment. But I do agree with you. You ha- If you have a license to prescribe medicine, it is your ethical duty to be able to understand the totality of the research. But there is an illusion of consensus. So the information that is provided to them is filtered to them. They don't understand research methodology. Many of them don't even understand how the drugs come to market through the FDA approval, which was the most frightening aspect of the entire process for me. The assumption that if it has FDA approval, and many of these drugs are also you know, prescribed off-label, but if the drug has FDA approval, then it means that the drug must be safe or and effective. And so that's something I've had to speak out about, that just because it, it, it achieves FDA approval, the FDA only requires two positive trials. Think about the insanity of this. You could have 20 trials that don't demonstrate an effect over placebo, and you find a way, and they do, they find a way to create a statistical difference between a drug group and a control group in order for that to meet the approval for FDA. The FDA doesn't even require long-term research. Most of these drug trials are like 8 to 12 weeks at most. So people don't realize that there is an experimentation that has been undergone in American culture for decades 
And your what's been communicated to all of us are very carefully constructed marketing statements to influence how we think about our health. I almost trust a uh, I almost trust a doctor who uses a, a medication off label and has a ton of experience with it in his or her own personal practice and trust the results of it more than I would trust the the drug that they don't have experience with that has FDA approval. True. True. Yeah. I just wonder where people can really turn. There's just so much uh, manipulation in these things and the the partially informed client or patient we say clients where in our in our work but the partially informed person thinks that they're actually like doing the work that they're supposed to be doing you know i mean there was a there was research on it's widely known that epidurals make labor a little less efficient and therefore longer and drive up the rate of c sections now it's not to say it's the wrong choice in an individual case but it's widely known uh, by all sides, that it does make labor longer and slower. And research came out recently that was like, great news, epidurals actually don't change the duration of labor. And I was like, how can that be? So I looked it up. And when you read the study, every woman in the study had an epidural during her entire labor until she started pushing. And for half of the women, they just removed it right when she started pushing. And some of those women had their babies six minutes later. And others an hour or two later, and there wasn't a statistical difference because all of their bodies were flooded with the anesthesia. You know, they go into this with their intention. We need to show this. How do we show this? Yeah. John, I I think it's Ionditis is his name out of Stanford, has been publishing work around this where upwards of 50% of published research, the conclusions don't meet the data. I've said that for years. I've noticed that personally, but I didn't know anyone actually took a look at that. Yeah. What happens is people end up reading kind of the abstract or just the final conclusions. And right. I mean, they don't really understand the entire methodology or what actually you know was conducted, what's poor research, what's not poor research, what's randomized controlled trials, what's not, and, and a number of things. But they just come to the, they read to the conclusions and boy, the authors take liberties and being able to assume things that are just not evident in the data. And that's where we have to be real concerned about the role the pharmaceutical ha- company has with influencing academics. So there's one of the things that they've done is they've had academics ghostwrite papers. So they're not involved with the trials, but they write the papers. And that gives it the air of scientific legitimacy. And they're on the payroll and they can go out to conferences and speak about the drug and support the drug. And that's just part of the in, the entire system that has flourished uh, within the pharmaceutical industry since the 80s. And that's why they're so powerful. And that information is just communicated to general public and the doctors as if it is sound scientific uh, data. Case to closed. Support all this. That's yeah. how it's done. Case closed. I think I heard on your podcast that 93% of studies are low quality. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. That was also from the Ionditis re- research. This leaves us in quite a predicament with with practice, like putting putting this information into practice, because we don't want to follow medical rhetoric. We don't want to practice consensus medicine. We can't turn to the evidence because the evidence half the time is garbage, garbage in, garbage out. Yes. So how are we as clinicians, how are women as um, consumers supposed to practice appropriately and receive appropriate care. 
it's always a challenging question because I get that often. But here we are. Uh, we're all sitting here and we have awareness of this. And so it's not like this the research that I talk about or what you talk about doesn't exist out there. Um, I think you're seeing an, a global awakening take place. And there's a lot of ethical scientists outside the, the system. And there is a lot of strong science being published on so many different areas around health, in, including, um, you know, just mind-body experiences and the ways that the body can heal itself. We're, we're returning to some more common sense understandings about the role of nutrition and managing stress and environmental toxins and learning and parenting and connection connection with nature. There's so many uh, interesting studies that are just burgeoning. And one of the things that's feeding it is social media and podcasts. It's like we're we're starting to move outside the limitations of legacy media and the pharma system and allopathic medical system. And we're just opening our eyes to new ways of thinking about things. And we're experimenting too with our own bodies. The common sense coming back to all this is what how am I living? How am I how am I sleeping? What am I putting into my body? What have we known from centuries of wisdom? And we find like-minded people and we find like-minded health practitioners and we begin to communicate with them. Like I know my family works with functional medicine doctors now. We've just removed ourselves from that system unless you have like a broken bone or something that they can clearly see and fix. And we think about things in terms of functional medicine and nutrients and health and exercise and stress and management. And my kids are, you know, my kids are teenagers and young adults. So, you know, they shouldn't have to be in our healthcare system. They shouldn't have to see doctors. If they're getting sick and they're not feeling well, there is something wrong within the way that they are living. There's something wrong with their immune system. The same thing applies, I think, in a lot of ways to our own psychological health. Like we have to understand more of the role of our lifestyle in the way that we're living and understanding our emotional experiences differently. So just the idea of talking about clinical depression as uh, like a medical illness in itself is problematic because they're going to try to treat it in the way the allopathic medical system treats it, SSRIs, antidepressants. And as we speak here, um, SSRIs are listed as a pregnancy risk category C which means animal reproduction studies have shown an adverse effect on the fetus and there are no adequate or well-controlled studies in humans. So we're going to provide women who are pregnant a drug that is going to put their own baby into withdrawal and a number of other things. And we can get into this, which I'm really concerned about is what antidepressants actually do to the body and how that can affect things like bonding and the experience of emotions that are necessary for being attentive to your newborn. Roger, I'm really glad you're bringing this up because I run a postpartum support group every week. And what they have found in studies of women who are suffering from a perinatal mood disorder, I don't even like to call it a disorder. I don't know your opinion on that, but I feel it is a completely normal response to have a baby and to have literally Every single component of your life change. Every relationship in your life just changed. Your entire body just changed. The things you're familiar with, like your habits, your wardrobe, they just changed. This is assuming a normal birth that doesn't leave you traumatized. You have someone dependent on you 24 hours a day and you're sleep deprived. 
I mean, who's to call it a disorder when you're like, well, this doesn't feel so good, <laughs> even though I, even though I'm, I'm bonded and attached to my baby. So I really have trouble getting the word disorder out of my mouth when I say I'm trained in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Your thoughts? Yes. I, I'm part of a, a larger movement about trying to depathologize the normal and expected human responses as if they're psychiatric conditions. So I am right on board with that. You just spoke to the complexity that exists in the human experience and what would happen normally when you have an infant. And that's imagine you have multiple kids that are all demanding your attention or you have economic problems and you don't have a husband who's around or a partner that's around in any way to support this. There's sleep deprivation. Every aspect of your experience is being provoked, your own insecurities, your challenges, whether you're good enough, um, the changes in your body that occur after a pregnancy and birth, um, the the adaptation process. So we we would have to say that something like that is is somehow deemed disordered, like you went off track in some way. And that leads to a judgment of your own internal experience instead of understanding it in context with deep connection and awareness to it and using it to support your growth and your adaptation. So I've I think it's much more normal than not to experience the wide range and intensity of emotions. And if we are not supporting people who are struggling with their mood to help solve some of the problems that do exist, then what what are we doing? We're we're actually probably exacerbating the the problem through other means of actually even conceptualizing it. You have children, correct? I do. Okay. So you are familiar with how the system works. A woman gives birth, she goes home, she has her life completely transformed. She maybe has her husband partner for support, maybe some supportive family. She doesn't talk to a doctor again for six weeks. She doesn't talk to anybody involved in her care and her pregnancy and her postpartum for six weeks. She goes in, she has a 20 minute, maybe 30 minute visit if she's lucky, primarily focused on her physical body, her physical changes, her physical recovery, checking the boxes of the exam. She may fill out the Edinburgh postpartum depression scale and it may be looked at for 30 seconds. And if she has the right number, she's offered a prescription for postpartum depression or anxiety and sent on her way. And that's basically how it goes for every woman. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. 
let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, Head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. It's like a scapegoat. It's like we're telling her and her entire community of support in her life, if she's lucky enough to have you know a partner and a family or friends in, around her in this chapter of her life, it's like, oh, she has depression. Ah, she was zapped with it. Oh, darn. Right. But if we were to say, no, she doesn't have a disorder. She's really sad. She's really anxious. She's really stressed. She's really overwhelmed. And if we don't point to blaming something, we just might say, hey, what can we all do to fix this? Oh, how do we get her more rest? How do we get her more support? Who's making sure she's eating breakfast in the morning? It's kind of like trying to convince the public that cancer is genetics and we just get zapped with it. Rather yeah. than saying, actually, they found it's like over 90% of the time, not genetics at all. It's lifestyle. So there you go. I guess you've got some, that's the good and the bad news. You've got responsibility here. But it worries me when there's a diagnosis because the family and her partner can immediately, if, he, if they're so inclined, can just say, oh, well, she's got this. Well, what about you? You're living in the house with her. How can you be different potentially here? Exactly. All outstanding points. And, um, you know, you become labeled as mentally ill, that label doesn't go away. And that's another thing that I'm really, really concerned about. So how one labels your own experience is really problematic. So if I would, if a, if a woman was labeling what she was going through as an illness, imagine then how that impacts how she copes with what's going on in her life. She's now broken. 
She's now disordered, all conceptualized in her own mind and by the environment around them. And if somebody is disordered or ill, that changes the way everyone interacts with you. So we have to be aware of the complexity of this. Now, there's something scary, intimidating about you. You can't be trusted. And if you can't be trusted, then you have to be watched. You have to be monitored. You'd have to be given a, a, a drug. How does that impact how she develops and how she relates to her own child and how everyone around them relates them? I, I think it's criminal negligence in some of how this is being treated in, in our healthcare centers by professionals who have no expertise or background or understanding of this. It's almost like they become detached on what it means to be human. And this is a cultural problem as much as anything, because we are not aware of what traditionally it is taken for to be able to support that new child in, into a home and how important it is that that mother is taken care of in all the areas that you've spoken about, nutritionally, sleep, rest, support, time with that child. There's, there's so many factors. And when they have done the research on perinatal mood disorders, what they found everyone has in common is isolation. And the one thing they have found is significantly useful is a professionally moderated support group. Why? Because of community, because of connection. Yeah. That's usually what we're missing in life. That's life-changing. Even one single friendship is life-changing. Um, I just wanted to bring up one more thing and have you comment on this. And I think it's important. I think it's on topic. I was listening to the Tara Brock podcast a few weeks ago, and she had a psychiatrist speak on, I think he was really into meditation. It was pretty impressive. He sounded terrific. He has his professional degree to prescribe drugs, but he said, actually, antidepressants, the number needed to treat ratio was 5.2. What that means is after doing the basic math on it, that means 19 for 19% of people, it's effective. So for 81% of people, these drugs are not even effective and can potentially make them even suicidal, more depressed, less able to sleep. It, it, they're so risky and so rarely effective. Do you have any knowledge about that? Do you disagree with that? Is, does that not sound true to what you've learned? 19% is high. So <laughs> yeah, it's high. Um, I've spoke out about this. I think the number people are, are, are talking about is 15%. So and the reason that they're saying that is there has been some research where there is a small percentage of people who tend to respond larger than the placebo response. So um, I think his name is Eric Turner. Eric Turner was a psychiatrist and he was a, a drug reviewer from late 90s, early 2000s. And this was a gentleman who was appalled by his exposure to all the negative studies around antidepressants that were not published. So it's publication bias. So they're only going to publish the studies that yielded their result. And so when he put all the studies together and published it in the New England Journal of Medicine, I believe, maybe 2007, there was a very small percentage of people who responded to the drug above placebo. I think there's there's good reasons around that because of the methodological flaws. But just based on that research, you're, you're going to put nine out of 10 people at risk generally for a serious adverse drug reaction for the maybe the one person that helps. So I decided to actually do a, a video. I constructed a video on why some people state that the antidepressant drug has 
save their life or something that's somewhat hyperbolic about how they need the drug in order to to live. And I, there's a, an entire video at Radically Genuine, my YouTube channel, that kind of goes over the complexity of this. Here's what I think has happened and why I think it's even less than 15% is in order to create a difference between the drug group and the placebo group and the clinical trials, the the drug companies did some very nefarious kind of behaviors. So one of them was that they withdrew up, they withdrew participants from the current psychiatric drugs they were on in order to put them on a placebo. And so that induced drug withdrawal. If you remember, if you go back to the early, throughout the 90s and the 80s, they used to talk about these drugs as non-habit forming. We know now that the drugs induce withdrawal. And so when people stop their drugs abruptly, it's potentially life-threatening, or they even taper too fast. They have a return of all these symptoms that are withdrawing from the from the drug. And the doc, unsuspecting doctors say, well, this is your depression returning, or this is your anxiety returning. So I don't trust the methodology of the of many of the randomized controlled trials. There's other factors that are involved with this too. When you take an SSRI, it's a psychoactive substance that acts on the brain. Uh, everyone knows they took the drug once they've taken it. So blind is broken. So you're no longer in a blinded situation when the researchers and the participants know they have the drug because they can experience, they feel it. It does change our physiology. Now, the one thing about an antidepressant is it induces in this emotional numbing effect. Upwards of 65% will report like an emotional detachment or an emotional numbing. The problem, which I I think a lot of your listeners have to understand because this is so critical, there is a a condition called post-SSRI sexual dysfunction, PSSD, and it's potentially permanent. So the numbing includes the numbing of the genitals, inability to orgasm, losing all attraction, and the lack of any positive emotions, and it's debilitating. So there is a large group of harmed patients who are trying to bring this attention to doctors. Now, even if you don't permanently lose sexual functioning, the the detachment or numbing emotionally is really problematic. Now, the question is, if somebody is in intense emotional pain, can that at least temporary emotional numbing be viewed as a relief. And so maybe for 10% of the population or even less, which I would think, who take the drugs, maybe they consider that emotional numbing as an antidepressant effect. But that is absolutely not aligned with anything we know about actually overcoming a depressive episode or struggling. It's actually feeling the emotions is necessary for us to be able to overcome the condition. In fact, being able to experience the wide range of emotions is necessary. So we would think that they are very evolutionarily adaptive and very necessary for us to be able to feel fear, sadness, loss, concern, emptiness, but also to be able to experience you know, love from somebody or empathy for one another, uh, connection, all these things that are just natural and necessary for us to be able to evolve in groups to take care of each other these type of human experiences get blunted from an SSRI. I'm a reasonable person. And so I ask reasonable questions. If an SSRI, we don't have really strong evidence that it can outperform a placebo. 
if it has all these adverse consequences, if it's a pregnancy risk category C, if it impacts the developing fetus or is passed through through breast milk, how do you, in a paper, come to the conclusion that the benefits may outweigh the risks? If emotional numbing exists that can can create distance and a detachment from the needs of your own baby, how in any way can a scientist say the benefits may outweigh the risk? What are the benefits? And wouldn't, I mean, my reasonable mind says this would increase the likelihood that someone would suffer from postpartum depression. It wouldn't be protective. It's not neuroprotective. There's so much insane comments that are stated by by physicians. And this is, I think my, my issue with this is, is your issue is they've taken Liberty to say things that are not true. They pass it around to each other. They say it, it becomes truth. They are not experts in this area at all. They don't know the research. They don't know any of the negative impacts and they dismiss, they dismiss people in the, in the system that you must be crazy if you're experiencing this type of side effect, it must be something else. Let me give you a new diagnosis. Let me give you a new pill. And that's the kind of gateway into this entire mental illness paradigm and the system in which we treat people who are struggling. Finding the perfect pregnancy and breastfeeding bra is no easy task. Your search is now over. Meet Davin and Adley, a mother-owned pumping, nursing, and maternity bra company with a unique, comfortable, and stylish cropped cami. This item is perfect to wear all day long from day one of your pregnancy right through the end of your breastfeeding journey and probably beyond. The Amelia cami makes pumping and breastfeeding easy while looking and feeling good on your body. It works seamlessly for both wearable pumps and flange pumps, and you can breastfeed in it. It also has a beautiful stretch lace back. You can sleep in it, dress up in it, go out in it, whatever you want to do in it. And trust us, the quality in this item and all of their items are top notch. They're soft, durable, and attractive. These bras will truly go the distance. Davin and Adley carry a gorgeous selection of maternity and nursing wear, and they have an innovative one-piece breast pad that we've never seen anywhere else. So no more losing those solo breast pads, ladies. Go ahead and check out the full collection of maternity and nursing items at davinandadley.com and use your promo code down to birth to save 15%. All right, breastfeeding moms, do you want to know one of our all-time favorite items for your nursing journey? If you know us, you probably could guess it. Yep, it's the Silverette Nursing Cup. These little nipple heroes not only protect, but also heal because they're made of real silver. It is naturally antimicrobial antifungal, and anti-inflammatory. These little cups will be your best friend in the early sensitive weeks of breastfeeding your baby. And our favorite part is they last literally forever. You can pass them on just like you would a favorite piece of jewelry. Head on over to silverettusa.com and use promo code down to birth to save 15%. We hear that with we hear that with lots of things, including vaccine reactions. Well, we know it's not that. It can't be that. Well, how can you ever make that claim? That's so unscientific. It is. And but also to say the benefit outweighs the risk. I remember once um years ago, uh flipping through channels on the television 
And it was some very famous person at a doctor considering um, getting Botox, like a young woman. I was kind of horrified, but I was, so I guess that's why I paused and watched. And she looked really scared, but she wanted to do it anyway, for some reason. And she said to the doctor, what are the risks? And I was like, let's hear it. Let's let America hear it. And he said, they're very, very minor. I mean, the benefits far outweigh the risk. And I was like, wait a minute, what? First of all, there is no benefit. We're talking health. The risks are health matters. The benefit is superficial. What, what, it's like, you can't even call it a matter of risk and benefit. We're not talking health compared to health. The only health matter involved is on the side of risk. I just, I couldn't believe he got away with saying that, but you know, it's on TV. No one complained. This is how yeah. it goes. And this is the consequences of a medical training system and an American educational system that overvalues rote memory and repeating back things that were told to you versus critical analysis and critical thinking. And so we all know that that science is an evolving process that requires critical analysis, replication of data. You know, just think about what's thrown out there in American culture now. Trust the science as if it's some agreed upon consensus. And we, we, we all Trust- know trust the science that's wrong more than 50% of the time. That's inaccurate. I mean, what, what, like, and how about the science that actually demonstrates these things aren't working? These things are causing harm. People are ending up with sexual malfunction and they can't experience happiness again. How about that science? It's trust what we tell you. Trust what we tell you is what they're communicating. It's the provocation of fear as a way to influence and control. And, and that's why, uh, you know, I just think it's so important that we actually communicate to an, our entire culture about what it means to be human. Our, I don't know if it's it, in, in some way it's like a detachment from religion or spirituality that we that fear controls us and we get so grounded to this this moment that we begin to actually see people as as enemies. The truth of the matter is is that, uh, things like like our own individual freedom and compassion and community are so necessary for us in order to be able to live well. There has to be a sense of purpose, and that purpose usually is around service of others. So even our discussion today, you know, I think part of our collective mission is that we serve others, and we serve others through through empathy and caring, and we we care about what happens to them, and we feel inspired and passionate around that. The moment we start creating people as as enemies and put them in in groups and out groups, then we start experiencing more of that isolation and that detachment and that collective distrust. And when you're in that state, it's very easy to be controlled and manipulated because you're relying upon the authority figure in order to be able to feel safe again. And that's why we saw the virtual virtue signaling because it was to say, "Hey, I'm in the good group, you know, they're in the bad group," and that is just so nefarious and manipulative. And I'm so shocked that people weren't able to see it. Yeah, you know, it's also because so many people doubted their decisions; they had to latch onto what was most popular so that they could feel safe in their decision because they were unable to make decisions for themselves. I mean, I, I think so many people who went in one camp or the other did it, you know, with a lot of 
inner conflict and maybe didn't even trust themselves, but it was like latch on to the thing that everybody's going to accept. So that I'm not the socially isolated person because that's everybody's worst nightmare is to be the outcast. Yeah. And I saw that fear in clinical practice. And so somebody who is a psychologist working directly with people, I saw the negative impact that that fear has on the way that they think and the way that they live. We saw just an increase in turning to substances, alcohol, uh, abuse really increased. Drug abuse really increased. I think people generally got more unhealthy, unfortunately, when we needed to refocus on our health, that we become very critically aware that there probably will be another pandemic at, at some point. And the most important thing, even in protecting ourselves from a novel virus, was our own quality of life around health, right? You were just more at risk if you were obese or had multiple health conditions, or you had a, a, a diet that was processed, or you didn't get enough vitamin D, there wasn't enough sun exposure, you didn't exercise, all the foundations of health. So if you're going to commit yourself to a healthy lifestyle, which I think is critical when it comes to talking about mental health, you're certainly going to be very hesitant and very protective of your own body because you cherish your health and you cherish how you feel. And you're not going to put anything into your body in a way that could potentially have an adverse reaction. And so the so you know that was the other piece to this is that you start seeing you know this collective group of people that you know are are, are certainly much more focused on getting information out there that is outside the mainstream that is focused on health. And that's the awakening of all this is that I think people are more aware of how we were manipulated and now we're open to new ways of thinking about living. And that's, that's the benefit, I think, of, of such a difficult time that we just kind of got through. Roger, this has just been such a great discussion. Um, we've got so much out of talking with you, and I'm sure we'd love to have you back in the future. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about exactly what you do? I know you're in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Tell us specifically what you do and um, how people can reach you and why people might want right. to reach you. Who should be reaching out to you if anyone wants to? Thank you. And and from listening to me on this podcast today, I'm sure that you all get the, the sense that I'm part of a movement to depathologize normal human responses. We are medicalizing all aspects of the human experience to the detriment of our own health and well-being. And so I'm part of, I think, a, a, a greater movement of of physicians too, or psychologists, mental health professionals, and just, you know, everyday parents and people who are trying to move away from this drug culture. So although I'm a practicing clinical psychologist, I'm also a researcher and I am doing a lot of independent research to try to understand how the medical system has really been hijacked by the pharmaceutical company and trying to provide people more information in order to consent in the mental health field. So to do that, you can you can follow a number of the things that I'm doing. On, on Twitter, I'm at Dr. McFillin. So I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, but two areas that are, are critical for my ability to kind of disseminate this information. One is the Radically Genuine podcast with Dr. Roger McFillin. I have also started a Substack where I'm doing a lot of writing. And so you can see like one of the recent articles where what informed consent should look like for antidepressant drugs or where I'm just sometimes just talking about greater issues in society and culture. Um, I, a recent article I talked about, you know, no, not everyone has ADHD. 
you know, it's just about being able to communicate how these psychiatric labels and DSM diagnoses have infiltrated our culture in a negative way. So Substack is uh, is Dr. McFillin, uh, ra- radically genuine. So you, you can you can find me on Substack. Uh, I've also had a YouTube channel, as we mentioned earlier, which is originally was, was terminated. That in itself should, I think, have you be a little bit curious about the videos that we're creating. Again, that's radically genuine. It's this radically genuine brand. Also, uh, we just recently started our uh, an Instagram. So we know the value and importance of social media and trying to get the, the message out. And I think there's a, a growing and large community of people like us who, who were talking today on this podcast who want to return to a, a sense of sanity, no pun intended, and common sense in how we approach our lives and to be able to present a, a free flow of, of information that's outside of the, the drug model. As a clinical psychologist, um, you know, I'm doing a lot of direct work. I'm also a leader in my, in my center. And we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to promote a, a, a group here where we are helping people you know, learn again what it means to be human and how to cope effectively with the challenges. Suffering is real. Going through an episode is real. So if you're depressed or anxious, we're not denying that exists. Or postpartum depression, we're not denying that exists. We're reframing it, though. We're reframing it in a way that can be much more helpful and can move you in a, in a direction where you can overcome Uh, the challenges that exist and so to that we have to be aware of what the problems are and we have to sometimes make some really hard changes in our life and i hope that message came through on today's podcast thanks for joining us at the down to birth show you can reach us at down to birth show on instagram or email us at contact at down to birth show.com All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. The moment we start creating people as as enemies and put them in in groups and out groups, then we start experiencing more of that isolation and that detachment and that collective distrust. And when you're in that state, it's very easy to be controlled and manipulated because you're relying upon the authority figure in order to be able to feel safe again. And that is just so nefarious and manipulative. And I'm so shocked that people weren't able to see it.